0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name
0: is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick and today we're going to be talking about an invention. Rob, I think this will be in the tradition of our episode on chopsticks that we did a while back. Why is it that you so often suggest discussing the invention of a uh, of a device with no moving parts that is used to eat?
1: I don't know. Like part of it may lead. Like in this case, I was looking at another topic and I kind of hit a wall on it. And I was like, oh, man, I'm just not excited about this topic anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I don't know, you kind of like you think to yourself, well, what's something smaller? What's something that couldn't possibly (laughs) hurt me? And you realize the spoon, it's right there. It's in the drawer. I love spoons, or, you know, in the previous case, chopsticks, and I know they've got to be a fascinating history. You know, it's uh, like one of some of these inventions that are, you know, so ancient, we're not going to pick out the individual that invented these things or anything like that, uh, but it is fascinating how they move through human civilizations.
0: Oh, so I understand. The spoon was your stay-puffed marshmallow man. You were trying to think of something so innocent and good that it could never hurt anyone. Right. And, And this is where we came to, but... I, I I was I was surprised as I always am because I think we found some pretty interesting stuff about the invention of the spoon.
1: Yeah, like if you if you think you know the spoon, if you think spoons are boring, well then. Um well, stay tuned because there's some there's some cool stuff. Uh, and, and also, you know, when you really stop to think about it and you really start to consider it. Yeah, it, it does get quite uh, quite fascinating. As uh, as B. Wilson pointed out in an Atlantic article that will come back to uh, what your spoon says about you from 2012. There are fork cultures, there are chopstick cultures, but every culture is a spoon culture. And, uh, of course, it's not just not just one type of spoon. There are a lot of different types of spoons. And I would like everyone out there to try and just imagine a day, a day in your life without access to any sort of spoon okay, so
0: you're up in the morning, you're trying to get ready for work. Uh You make your coffee and maybe you add some cream to your coffee, but what do you do? Well, you stick your finger in and burn it as you stir it around. Yeah. And then after that, you got some oatmeal, but how are you going to get that oatmeal in your mouth? Well, you're just reaching in with your fingertips and shoving it in there and that's going to be crusty later on, but you're in a hurry.
1: Uh And then it goes on from there. Yeah. I mean, even going back to the coffee, like, all right, you're, you're, you're going to get coffee grounds and put them into your coffee brewing uh, device or or, uh, or 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 vessel uh, how are you going to measure that stuff out you know now some of this we're getting into the distinction of what is a what is a scoop what is a cup what is a, a spoon but essentially like spoons are are a way that we measure stuff as well we'll get into that so imagine yourself you know you're just gonna have to make that kind of like rough uh, uh, Rudger Hauer coffee in the morning, where you're not really, you're not really putting a lot of thought into it, just throwing it in there, then putting some boiling water, and then just let the cream fall where it will. Depraved. Now, for, for my part, uh, I often play a kind of game uh, in the morning. So I get up, I make my coffee. Sometimes I get to, to finish watching part of a uh, of a movie for Weird House or something, uh, and then everybody else gets up. We do it. We do breakfast, and at some point, I. Uh, I either unload the dishwasher or I help unload the dishwasher and for a long time uh, now I've been playing this kind of game in my head um, where I consider all of the various utensils and plate types teams and the winning team is the one that managed to get the most members of their team into the dishwasher the previous day. Um, so, uh, so I've, I've since told my family about this. My son gets in on the, on the fun too. Now, you know, uh, it might be a banner day for team fork or team butter knife or team ramekin. Sometimes team ramekin really, really cleans it up. But those are the days where where you have executed a good mise en place while making dinner. I don't know. We use, we end up using ramekins for a lot of different things. So it's like, you know, puddings and. Or snack mix, you know, you don't want to eat right out of the bag. You put it into the ramekin. So there are days when the, when the ramekin team does goes quite well. But my, my favorite team and the team that seems to win the most is, of course, Team Spoon. Uh, and there are days where just the three of us, we manage to use not only all the all the big spoons and all the little spoons, but also, say, both grapefruit spoons, the weird sugar spoon that we don't actually use because we don't use a, a like a sugar spoon. Uh, 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 Caddy thing. Uh or and also the odd spoon that's in the drawer that doesn't match anything else that's like left over some, from from some other set or something. Mm-hmm. Um so nobody's left on the bench for Team Spoon. Everybody's in the game and they win. This is like one of those big uh, uh tag team matches where
0: suddenly everybody ends up in the ring, they're all pouring yeah. out.
1: Yeah, yeah. The serving spoons, wooden cooking spoons, you name it. So yeah, it's 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 really hard for me to imagine a day without using spoons. I I don't even know. I don't even want to tell people to take the no spoon challenge and tell us how it goes because it just it doesn't sound fun. So really, just think of all the things we use a spoon for. So mixing, stirring, measuring, serving, eating, and and just think of all the foods they work well with. I, I feel like I can depend on the spoon. For just about everything, with occasional use of chopsticks as well. But I rarely use a fork. Um, it, I, and part of it is my, you know, I don't know, I, I've gotten to where I kind of think of the, the fork as maybe just too pointy and maybe too violent. Uh, but, uh, but, but I just rarely need one if I'm going to depend on the spoon. The spoon can do pretty much everything the fork can. And if it, if it can't, then I've got the chopsticks to depend on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends largely on what kinds of foods you eat the most in your house, but uh, w- we're the same way. We, uh, I- I'd say probably at least three quarters of our meals involve either a spoon, chopsticks, or both, but probably only maybe one in four involves a fork.
1: Yeah. So uh, in, in keeping with past invention uh, episodes, uh, let's start where we always start. Uh, what came before? What came before the spoon? Uh, Well, obviously, eating with one's fingers, right? (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, for that, for further exploration of that, we, of course, can look at some examples from our primate cousins. Uh, So, first of all, uh, in addition to just sort of like sticking your hands in things and licking things off your fingers, uh, there's, of course, using cupped hands. Uh, especially for liquids, for things like water, um, uh, these of course allow uh, even modern humans to form uh, a cup or a bowl out of their own body but there's a, there's a there's a lot of stuff like spoons have been around so long uh, that yeah oftentimes they're mundane, but sometimes there's stuff uh, uh, there are uses of it that uh, are, are maybe a little more insightful. for instance in Jewish tradition there's the the allegory of the long spoons.
0: Yeah, this is a story that's uh, that gets told in sort of uh, sermons and religious teaching a lot. I think it's actually. I was looking around, and I don't think anyone, as far as I could tell, has identified a certain origin of this story. There oh, seem yeah? to be a lot of cultural variations, including a Chinese version that that references chopsticks, and then versions of it that reference spoons. Actually, I think I should tell the other version of it first because it makes more sense. So, uh, so the version I read was that a you know a teacher comes up to his rabbi and says rabbi tell me the difference between heaven and hell and the rabbi says well at at uh, in both heaven and hell everyone is seated at a at a great table for a feast and there is plenty of uh, delicious food out in front of them you know steaming bowls of delicious stew uh, but in both heaven and hell people cannot bend their arms at the elbow and yet while that means everyone in hell starves because they can't bring the food up to their lips, everyone in heaven is sated because they don't try to feed themselves, they feed each other. Oh. And then a, a variation on this story is that uh, instead of being unable to bend your arms at the elbow, uh, the only utensils are very long utensils that make it difficult. So you like can't feed yourself, but you could feed somebody else. So a long spoon would be, I guess, one that's hard to use to
1: get up to your own face. Hmm. Okay. Well, I see the point they're making, but also just the idea of being like a Star Wars action figure uh, in in the afterlife and not being able to move your 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 uh, your arms, uh, uh, having only like one point of articulation, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- that does sound like torment. I mean, I think the point it's trying to
0: make is maybe not literally supposed to be about heaven and hell, but, uh, but about how, uh, you know, the kind of Ebenezer Scrooge concept that a right. person who is selfish uh, creates a, a hell of their own making by their continued inability to, to think of other people.
1: Right, right, yeah. But put enough miserable people in one place and that place will become a place of misery. Yeah. Uh, just by virtue of their um, their personalities.
0: But I guess one thing that that does highlight is that uh, maybe a lot of times we don't appreciate enough the minute physical uh, features of a spoon and how much difference that makes in how usable it is. Uh, this makes me think at least about how hard it is to eat with a spoon that is just slightly too big. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like that's yeah. another thing we don't often think about. So a spoon, of course, when used as an eating utensil is a means of conveyance. You know, It gets the food – from the plate or the bowl into your mouth. But it's not just any means of conveyance. It's also, in effect, a measuring device. It measures out an appropriately sized bite of food or you know quantity of food to fit in your mouth at one time. And so a spoon that's too small or a spoon that's too big is actually very weird and frustrating to eat with.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, we'll, we'll, we'll keep coming back to this, but you know, when you think about a, a given spoon design, uh, the spoon is... It's, its design is going to be uh, influenced by what sorts of foods it is. It was designed to deal with, mm-hmm. but then also its design is going to have an impact on how you eat, and uh, like in in terms of like how much you're attempting to put in your mouth at one time, uh, but also how you hold the spoon, and therefore how you carry yourself, uh, like you know, socially and, and and mannerly at the dinner table or, or wherever you happen to be eating. So it's you know it's it's this thing that um, that, that has, a, has a big impact on the way we behave and the way we, we consume, uh, even if we just think of it as just this often disposable item uh, that comes with the meal. You know, looking at this topic made me wonder, are there any studies looking at
0: the psychological effects of eating directly with the hands versus using utensils? Uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody must have looked at that. I found at least one study. I probably wouldn't hang too much on this one result, but uh, but it, it did seem interesting. So this was a paper published in the Journal of Retailing. So not like a psychology journal, but like a business journal by – Adriana V. Uh, Majorov called self-control and touch. When does direct versus indirect touch increase hedonic evaluations and consumption of food? And the short version of what the study found is that among people who apply self-control during food consumption. So I think this is especially people who are being careful, people who are watching what they eat. I don't know if the same would apply to people who are just, uh, you know, just kind of shoveling it in there, but Among people who show high self-control when eating food, touching food directly with the hands enhances the sensory experience and increases hedonic evaluations of food. So uh, people who who eat with their fingers directly versus eating the same food with a spoon report finding that food more pleasurable to eat, and they eat more of it.
1: Hmm. Well, that's interesting.
0: It almost makes me wonder if there could be a kind of small – role for the spoon and other utensils in the evolution of of human food and cuisine and and culture in uh, tempering the appetite, like sort of making you hold back a bit in how much you eat in any one sitting?
1: Huh. That is, yeah, I had not really thought about that. But then, like you said, this is just one study, and of course it it raises the the point um, that We have various food cultures around the world, and some of them are more inherently based on eating with hands versus Mm -hmm. eating with utensils. And like, you know, this kind of broad statement, how does that apply to like this cuisine, this food culture versus this one? Like it could be where it's like, oh, well, I just I've never stopped to touch chili before. But now when I'm eating chili (laughs) with my hands, yes, I suddenly feel far more hedonic. Uh, I (laughs) I, I don't know.
0: Well to whatever extent this is generally applicable if it is uh I think it would you'd have to confine at least this result to foods that could be eaten either way right because a lot of foods you you basically can't eat them except with a spoon I guess maybe slurping from a bowl you know soups and porridges and stuff which are we should remember a huge portion of all the foods that humans have eaten throughout history of a lot of foods are liquid based
1: yeah all right. Well, let's let's back up just a little bit and uh, and consider primates again. So, uh, we were talking about hands coming together and, and forming natural cups uh, or natural spoons. Again, we can we can kind of the terminology kind of breaks down when you're dealing with the uh, like the pre spoon. Uh, approaches to this to the same uh, functions. But uh, I was reading about this in an article. This was a Nat Geo from Liz Langley called Meet the Beetles that Harvest Fog in the Desert. And uh, uh, the author mentions a few different examples of, of curious things that animals do to uh, to get, to get their, their food or their their liquids. And uh, they mentioned that, uh, that um, Southeast Asian gibbons drink water through cupped hands, sometimes while hanging inverted. Now, of course, Uh, The spoon that we're using, the spoon you probably use today, it is, of course, uh, an artifact. It is a a thing that we have made out of other uh, objects or other materials. But the, the step right before creating an artifact, in the words of anthropologist Wendell Oswald, is a nature fact. That's a naturally occurring object used intentionally, but without modification for some purpose. Uh, so, uh, Jane Goodall actually observed chimpanzees using blades of grass as a kind of spoon to consume termites in the 1960s. And I ran across a 2015 paper published in the Royal Society Open Science that found that chimps use leaves as a kind of spoon or cup to drink alcohol seeping from palm trees. Hmm. A uh, leafy shot glass. Yeah, exactly. Now, likewise, uh, before humans crafted the first spoons or something, or the proto-spoons, they likely uh, used found pieces of wood and especially shells. As pointed out by the California Academy of Sciences, which has a page on spoons, both the Greek and Latin words for spoon are derived from cochlea, meaning a spiral-shaped snail shell. Uh, This may point to the origins of the spoon, in Europe at least, Uh, uh, you know, taking taking a shell, a found shell and using that as a spoon. And of course, we see this reflected sometimes in uh, our more elegant um, spoon designs where the um, the spoon itself, the the cup of the spoon is made, the bowl of the spoon is made to look like a shell.
0: Oh, yeah. And I've used a spoon like that before. I think it's some family member's house at some point uh it was like a ladle that was shaped like a, yeah, like a shell
1: that had the ridges in it. It was annoying to use. <laughs> you uh, utensil nerds out there will have to let us know, because I know that the collectors really get into the exact terminology for not only the different types of spoons, but also the styles, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know I've seen them before. I feel like it was used as a as a sugar spoon or something. Uh, but then, the, the you know, another question arises here is a shell really a spoon are we de- even if you uh, take the shell and you attach it to a stick you know are, are we dealing with things or functions uh, this is a question raised by Polish linguist uh, Anna Wiersbecka of the Australian National University in the idea of a spoon semantics prehistory and cultural logic in 2014 um, and i have to say if you want if you want a, a deep but approachable paper on what it means to call something a spoon <laughs> Uh, then this is—I mean—it's a really good article. Like you'll—you'll—if you know, if, if, if that if sounds laughable, I recommend looking it up. You can find it online. Um, it, it, it's quite enjoyable. We're not going to get into all the points that they raise, but we'll get into some of it. Does it does it shred that Matrix scene? Oh, what was the what was the spoon Matrix scene? It's, it's been a while. I haven't gotten around to my rewatch uh, yet.
0: I well, it is that there's a little boy within the Matrix who's telekinetically bending a spoon, and then Keanu tries to do it, and he fails and the little boy tells him the problem is that he's trying to bend the spoon instead of realizing that in
1: fact there is no spoon there is no spoon, of course now i remember it um i I don't i don't think they specifically mentioned that but (laughs) let's keep that in mind i think it's some of the
0: gnostic themes of the matrix Ah. coming through in the idea that uh that true enlightenment and power comes from realizing that material reality is an illusion
1: ah gotcha all right, well, uh, I want to read just a bit from uh, Verzbecca's uh, article here. Quote, When the focus is on things rather than concepts, it is indeed impossible to draw a line between spoons and sort of spoons. There are many shades of gray between a Puritan, that's a type of spoon that we'll discuss uh, later on in the episode, and a shell, or between a carved spoon and a chip of wood. There is no such shading, however, between the concept spoon and concept shell or chip of wood. The invention of the spoon, like the invention of the wheel, is a conceptual breakthrough. Without a clear distinction between things which are made for purpose according to a certain blueprint and things which are merely used for a purpose with no crystallized creative idea behind them, we can hardly make any firm generalizations about cultural history, prehistory, and the history of cooking and eating. And then they go on to say, Quote, I submit that cultural kinds are based on complex ideas born in individual human minds in the context of particular needs, ideas that have caught on in certain communities and have become embedded in social practices, and that without identifying these ideas, we cannot fully understand the practices based on them. And from here, they... Uh, point to you know to a very important consideration in the birth or invention of the spoon that it arises in large part due to the importance of soft watery cereal based foods such as gruels and porridges in given cultures and so different sorts of spoons that we find in different cultures are tied to specific food cultures well yeah if you want to jump right into it
0: i could discuss some some specific evidence on exactly that front
1: yeah why not There, there are no rules we we we'll just dig our spoons in wherever.
0: All right. Well, I guess that means we're going to jump to the part of the episode where we try to find the oldest spoon known of. Uh, and, and one thing that I think is worth noting is that if you're generous with what you would call a knife in the context of culinary use, I think it's extremely clear that the knife predates the spoon. Uh, mm-hmm. not, the fork doesn't, but the knife
1: does. Well, it makes sense, right? Because we've talked about the ways that the hand can do things that a spoon can do mm-hmm. and uh, but but there are things that a knife can do that the hand cannot do, that the teeth cannot do, right. Uh, so the further you go back, the evidence
0: gets more ambiguous. But there's no question at all that by a few hundred thousand years ago, like like 200,000 years ago, our ancestors were using sharpened pieces of stone, uh, often flint and other stones that are uh, suitable for napping, to create blades. And actually, the evidence uh, I was checking recently, it goes back even farther than that based on recent discoveries in, in Africa. Um, I think there is evidence of stone blades going back at least a half a million years or so from Kenya. And there might be stuff even earlier now, but probably a major one of the uses for early stone knives was for the processing of animal carcasses. So if you have been hunting or you've come across a dead animal and you're trying to strip the meat from the bones or cut the meat into usable uh, pieces of usable size, a sharpened piece of stone will help you do that. So again, if you, if you're generous with what counts as a knife, knives obviously go way, way back, deep, deep human, and even uh, uh, even pre-homo sapiens. Uh, But with spoons specifically, uh, a lot of the stuff on the Internet, if you're looking around for the oldest spoons, it ends up talking about stuff from ancient Egypt or wherever, which is very interesting and we will talk about. But you know that there must be stuff uh, earlier than that, at least as far back as the Neolithic. So I went searching in the scientific literature. I was trying to find an authoritative attempt at cataloging the oldest spoons in the archaeological record. And I did come across something. There does appear to be some ambiguity in this one, too, because there are things you can find from from the Stone Age, and you can argue, is this a spoon or not? But at some point, uh, certainly a little bit before the Neolithic, and then definitely during the Neolithic, we get clear evidence of spoons. Um, So I found one recent paper that gives a good rundown of the existing evidence. This is a paper by Sofia Stefanovich et al. called Bone Spoons for Prehistoric Babies, Detection of Human Teeth Marks on the Neolithic Artifacts from the Site Grad
1: Starchevo, that is impressive. You know, I, I didn't think about that, but like feeding a baby its first foods, those foods have to be, well, one way or another, they, you know, they have to be mashed up. They have to be soft foods and babies, uh, you know, they can uh, they can spit out and they can bite. You know, with their little gum mouth. So, uh, yeah, I could see, uh, and, and and eventually teeth. Uh, yeah. Anyway, go on. I'm just I'm astounded here. I didn't think about this at all.
0: Yeah. Th- this this paper was really interesting to me. So um so Rob, I've attached a picture of some of these spoons for you to look at for reference. They aren't spoons like we would imagine today that have a rounded cup area. They're they're mm-hmm. they look more kind of like tiny scoop paddles made of bone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as uh, Stefanovic et al. discuss here, the earliest solid evidence of consistent cultural spoon use pops up in the Neolithic period. Now, remember, the Neolithic period is the last part of the Stone Age. This is still the the age in human development where cultures are dominated by stone tools, but this is coinciding with or after the invention of agriculture. So uh, it's usually imagined to begin roughly 12,000 years ago. I think there's, there's a good bit of looseness. And, and uh, how those years apply, especially depending on like what particular region you're talking about. But roughly 12,000 years ago or so, we go into the Neolithic era. And, and significantly, this coincides with the invention of agriculture and the widespread use of spoons. Before the Neolithic, there is some evidence of spoons, but in the words of the authors here, these pre-Neolithic spoons are, quote, rare and isolated occurrences. And they give a few examples. One is something cited by an archaeologist named John Nandris that was published in the Bulletin of the Institute of Archaeology in 1972. I could not find the full text on this, but the citation is uh, for a single instance of an artifact from the Paleolithic, so the Old Stone Age going way back – that Nandris interpreted as a spoon made out of bone. Hmm. For more solid evidence, uh, the authors here cite, quote, the earliest secure find of a pre-Neolithic spoon was documented at a geometric Kabaran site of Uyun al-Hammam, which uh, which was context dated to about sixteen and a half thousand years ago, or sixteen thousand five hundred years ago, roughly. Now uh, I followed this up. I went to the study they were talking about, and this is a study by Lisa A. Marr et al called a unique human-fox burial from a pre-Natufian cemetery in the Levant, Jordan, and this was published in PLOS 1 in 2011, and this also was really interesting. So this is this is one of the earliest examples known of a spoon in the archaeological record, and it's being attributed to what is being called here the pre-Natufian culture. Now, uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while and and the idea of the Natufian culture rings a bell, this is the modern name for a late Paleolithic culture that lived in the Levant. So you think modern day Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Jordan. And the Natufian culture is really interesting from a historical technological perspective because they sort of show – signs of practices that are associated with agriculture but before the apparent invention of agriculture so a lot of things you might think of as, as associated with agriculture like a sedentary existence uh, you know remaining in one place for prolonged periods of time uh, things like cemeteries and architecture and certain types of culinary innovations all these things we think of as associate as, as sort of stemming from the farming existence but then. And the Natufians showed some evidence of these practices before they had settled farming. So you might think of the Natufians as sort of classic hunter-gatherers who had started making a bridge to the kinds of things we see in the sedentary agricultural lifestyle popping up in, in millennia later without technically planting crops yet or at least not doing that
1: much. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense that this would be the type of people where you might find something like the spoon, which uh, you know, as we'll continue to discuss here, is uh, seemingly inherently linked with. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's widespread use with the uh, with the, the agricultural revolution right uh so it, th- here this is another
0: thing you might recall uh the the reason it 's come up on the show before we talked about the Natufian culture in the context of our invention episode on bread and toast. Oh, you yes. remember this, Rob? yeah, mm-hmm, so yep. uh, there was this study that we talked about by Arans Otegwi et al, by, uh, published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2018. And this was the Bread Before Farming study, which looked at evidence from Natufian cooking sites in Jordan from about 14,000 years ago. So again, before there was really any signs of organized agriculture. Uh, and they found what looked like the charred remains of bread crumbs in the cooking sites. In other words, it looks like these people were making bread before they were planting cereal crops so this would have meant harvesting grain from wild grasses and then you know doing the culinary innovation work of putting together these grains with other ingredients to make a kind of bread uh, i think this would this would have been einkorn wheat which is a, a wild strain of wheatgrass and then something called uh, the roots of club rush tubers and then also there were some other things mixed in the spices like mustard and trace amounts of barley and it looks like what happened is they would make this dough out of these grains and then cook it on the the heated stone walls lining their fire pits, which is actually kind of similar to the way that Indian naan bread is made in the walls of a tandoori oven today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So anyway, th- that was the, the, the context on – yeah, so Natufians apparently being grain innovators, people who were coming up with new and potentially revolutionary ways to cook with the the grains of
1: wild grasses – and of course that would that would mean potentially not only bread but bread 's uh sibling uh, porridges right exactly right
0: uh, so coming back to this two thousand and eleven study by Marr et al, remember this is the one from the uh, the one called a unique human fox burial from a pre Natufian cemetery in the Levant. And so I just want to read from the author's uh, abstract here so so we can see what's going on. They write, new human burials from northern Jordan provide important insights into the appearance of cemeteries and the nature of human animal relationships within mortuary contexts during the Epipaleolithic period. So this is roughly 23,000 years ago to about 11,600 years ago picking up with them in the Levant, reinforcing a socio-ideological relationship that goes beyond predator prey. Previous work suggests that archaeological features indicative of social complexity occur suddenly during the latest epipaleolithic phase, the Natufian. Again, that's uh, roughly 14,500 years ago to about 11,600 years ago. These features include sedentism. So a settled existence cemeteries, architecture food production including animal domestication and burials with elaborate mortuary treatments so i think this is what we were talking about just a little while ago the idea of uh uh, settled existence and showing cultural practices that we associate with with agricultural societies Hmm. they write our findings from the pre-natufian middle epipaleolithic cemetery of uyun al Hamam." demonstrate that joint human-animal mortuary practices appear earlier in the Epipaleolithic. We describe the earliest human-fox burial in the Near East, where the remains of dogs have been found associated with human burials at a number of Natufian sites. This is the first time that a fox has been documented in association with human interments predating the Natufian and with a particular suite of grave goods. Analysis of the human and animal bones and their associated artifacts provides critical data on the nature and timing of these newly developing relationships between people and animals prior to the appearance of domesticated dogs in the Natufian.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, so in these graves, they do find an example of humans buried alongside a fox – and coming to the spoon in particular, there is one of these graves, it's grave eight, which they say they find a spoon slash spatula that consists of, quote, a tibial shaft fragment from a red deer, Servus elaphus with one end broken at, a, at an oblique angle and tapering to a rough point, while the other end has been smoothed to form a shallow depression. So it appears this is one of the earliest clear indications of a spoon in the archaeological record from this pre-Natufian burial site. And this is so interesting. Uh, some I don't know. Sparks are going off in my brain. You might not imagine to find these things going together some of the earliest clear evidence of a spoon and some of the earliest known burials of a human with a fox buddy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, like you're tempted to try and connect the two. Like well, yeah. maybe maybe spoons are helpful for feeding pet foxes. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I in in the care of a pet, we do find ourselves using spoons. Oh, um, that's, but, yeah. You know, I mean, I gotta you gotta get the, the the food out of a can one way or another. You gotta. You <laughs> get, you <laughs> I mean, occasional I, medicines. I
0: I wasn't trying to be that direct in the connection, but it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying there. It, it suggests that there's some kind of a, a ferment underlying both, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, coming back to that first study, uh, uh, Stefanovic et al. summarizing other early evidence for spoons in the archaeological record, uh, Stefanovic et al. write, "Quote: Bone spoons were also present in the Natufian, uh, again that's fourteen point five to eleven point five thousand years ago, and in Mesolithic Europe." in the material culture of the Circum-Baltic hunter-gatherers. However, the ubiquity and quantity of spoons in bone-tool assemblages significantly increases in the Neolithic period, especially in the early Neolithic of Anatolia and the Balkans, and they are primarily a Neolithic phenomenon. So once we hit the Neolithic era, uh, there's agriculture spreading all around, we're in this final stage of the Stone Age tool set, Uh, spoons start showing up all over the place. And this really does appear to be connected to the advent of agriculture. Humans are living a more settled existence. They're practicing both the farming of cereal crops and animal agriculture, which importantly provides milk. And uh, spoons are showing up all over the place. So what does this mean? And to me, this gets into the even more fascinating part of the Stefanovich study, uh, because what it's actually looking at here is is the invention of the earliest spoons in the context of broader shifts in food technology, agriculture, and especially child care. Uh, so I was reading a good write-up of this study by archaeologist and science writer Christina Kilgrove on her Forbes blog. Uh, you can go read that blog post if you if you want to know more, but just to hit some of the points from it, the site that they're looking at here in, in this study is uh, Grad Starchevo, which is on the bank of the Danube in Serbia. And these artifacts, I think, were discovered sometime in the 1930s. In the 1930s, there's roughly like 50 small bone tools that were found here, and they were made out of cow bone. They were dated back to roughly 8,000 years ago or so, which would have been during the Neolithic. And previous archaeologists had suggested, well, maybe these little bone tools were used for scraping flour from grinding stones, or maybe for uh, maybe making some kind of markings on, on ceramic pottery or ceramics in general, or maybe they were somehow used in uh, some kind of cosmetic use, like applying, applying pigments to the body or face or to clothing. But the authors of this 2019 study by Stefanovich et al., Argue something different. They say, no, these tools are spoons and that, quote, they were used for feeding babies and that marks on them can be connected to the usual mouthing behavior, meaning biting, nibbling, gnawing and pulling of children who may, up to four years of age, mouth objects up to 50 times during one hour. (laughs) And they tested this by looking, uh, by doing bite mark analysis. They were comparing marks left on these bone tools to marks left by dental models based on uh, the teeth of babies and children today. And what they say is they found a match. Uh, The marks on these bone tools really made it look very clear that babies and young children were chewing on them and that these probably were spoons used for feeding babies. And so here I want to read a section from Kilgrove's write-up, quote, the discovery of feeding spoons is highly significant archaeologically. In the Neolithic time period, there came a series of dramatic transformations for human culture, a more sedentary way of life thanks to the first plant and animal domestication. This so-called Neolithic revolution also affected the population structure, reduced mobility, a shift towards high-calorie cereal foods, and a reduction in the length of time that mothers breastfed their babies led to an incredibly rapid population growth. And uh, she notes that e- even though the demographic growth of humans during the Neolithic period should be understood in a major way in terms of what mothers and babies were doing at the time, this area of prehistory has often been understudied. And I think that reflects a, a general trend in in the study of history and, and deep prehistory is that there's sometimes not enough attention paid to domestic life and the raising of children.
1: Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, more focus on uh... What the hunters were doing and so forth, yeah. (laughs)
0: And so uh, Stefanovich and colleagues in this paper argue that, quote, the increased number of babies in the Neolithic demanded new daily life routines, not only for prehistoric parents, but for the whole community. Uh, so there's this idea that maybe uh, child rearing here became less of something that was just going on directly between uh, the mother and her own infant, but became more of a community activity where other people could pitch in with things like feeding the babies, And uh, and so there are some other things we can learn from physical features of the spoons uh, apart from the bite marks. One is that these bone spoons took a lot of work to produce, Uh, apparently experimentally, maybe around 25 hours of of labor. Though it's hard to know, again, always with these experimental studies, like how exactly that would translate to to original labor time in the Stone Age. But, yeah, it's clear they would have taken time to create. This was not just like something that was basically a nature fact. It, it, It took work.
1: So different from like a modern plastic spoon, where oftentimes you get it for free with the meal that you uh, you purchased, and mm-hmm. then you might throw it away without even using it. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, that always, uh, yeah. Every time that happens, yeah,
1: I, I, I don't recommend it. I'm not saying that's the way to live your life, but yeah. um, that's where we are as a as a disposable um, culture.
0: But anyway, another thing about these these bone spoons is that they they represent evidence of infants being weaned on new types of food. This was new. This food was new technology. I know it's weird Mm -hmm. to think about it that way, but I I think it really was like they were being weaned on new types of food. Uh, The implications are animal milk and ground cereal grains. Uh, Again, the depressions in these spoons are shallow indicating that it was likely porridge that the, that the children were being fed here when they were uh, making these teeth marks on the spoons. And this also represents, again, quoting from Kilgrove here, new kinds of organization of baby care, given the new easy to prepare types of gruel probably allowed other persons to be involved in baby weaning. So anyway, this makes me think about spoons in a whole new light as like a Mm -hmm. crucial piece of technology in the development of human culture, especially as this relates to uh, what child care consisted of and who could do it.
1: Yeah, because like you said, suddenly there are more babies, uh, and then you have this more of a like a sedentary, local, localized lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, other people can pitch in. Uh, and and here's the the tool that makes it possible. Here's the um, here's the the culinary invention that helps make it possible in, in the form of the porridge, which which is very much a you know a creation. You don't find naturally occurring porridge in the wild.
0: Yeah. So th- this paper, I will say, it really blew my mind. I, I will not think about spoons the same way after this one.
1: All right. Well, should, should we get into some uh, other examples of uh, cultural spoons and early spoons? Sure. All right. Well, I was, uh, you know, as, uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, Veersbeck brings this up, uh, there, there's uh, an author, James Gibbs, who uh, discussed uh, the Egyptian spoon, which uh, you alluded to earlier, earlier. The Egyptians produced small round bronze spoons around 1000 BCE. And these were really neat because they had they had sharp points at the end of the stem, so on one end of the of the spoon you have the, you know the spoon, the little bowl of the spoon, and then on the other hand end there's a skewer of sorts you you might also call it the one tine fork yeah 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 exactly and but the thing is it's kind of a mystery uh, of what this was actually used for, so it's thought that you you either um you know, flipped your spoon around and you then use the spear to, like, grab bits of meat off your plate, again, using it just like a, a one-pronged fork. Or, and this is neat, it was used to extract snails. Hmm. So it
0: was for digging around in there?
1: Yeah. Okay. So. I, I have to admit, I, I, I'm not a big snail uh, consumer uh, and, and never was, but I was looking around. I was like, okay, uh, you know, escargot is a is a thing. It's part of French cuisine. Uh, and I was, I was looking around at utensils for that. And there are specialized utensils for snail uh, uh, eating for escargot, though it seems to generally revolve around tongs and narrow two-pronged forks. Um, however, I looked around a little bit more. Uh, my Amazon search results are totally jacked now. It's, they're just going to try and sell me... Uh, Weird um, or uh, atypical um, uh, eating utensils now, mm-hmm. but uh, I do see modern seafood fork spoon combos that remind me a lot of the Egyptian description. You know, like they're narrow with like a little spoon on one end and it's like a, a thing that's that's more like a a little shiv on the other uh, that's used for digging around in um, like things like crabs, picking crab, which is mm. interesting because that of course is something that is often done with fingers like fingers work Mm -hmm. really well for picking crab if you don't mind your fingers being stabbed by tiny pieces of shell constantly yeah and and just getting all nasty yeah
0: that's one of the things i always feel like uh i enjoy eating crab but whenever i do i feel uh, very self-conscious because i feel like i look disgusting like my fingertips are all covered in that juice and it's just all over the place i don't
1: know yeah uh it's one of those things that I, i i enjoy for a little bit and then i'm increasingly over it uh, because, but it does make me feel like a total hunter gatherer. You know, like I'm mm-hmm. just like I'm, like I'm just digging through the raw uh, animal. It's it's uh, so. a kind of eating that for me does not facilitate conversation
0: at the table. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you, you don't you don't imagine like sitting around cracking on a crab while you're also having a stimulating conversation. It's just what's going on is between you and the crab.
1: Well, and then sometimes there's there's communication about the crabs. You're talking about the, the search for the meat. And if you have younger members at the table, it's about then helping them acquire the meat. So, I don't know. Um but, but in, anyway, as far as Egyptian spoons go, I've also read that, it, that spoons don't seem to have been really in use in pre-dynastic Egypt. So spoons came with the rise of the pharaohs. So food would have largely been consumed prior to this by hand at the table, which is you know still, uh, again, a feature of various culinary traditions. Uh, but, uh, but you do see uh, you know, the, the rise of the pharaohs, the rise of the spoon, um, and you see some very ornate spoons emerging as well. Well something that I think emerges
0: very early in human cooking and and culinary traditions and is still a major feature of a lot of food today is the uh is the spoon that is edible where you know a lot of cultures focus very much on uh, like scoopable breads that function yep. as a kind of spoon where you'll have like a stew type food and then you'll have a type of flatbread or something that you use to scoop up or sop up the uh, the stew and then shovel that into the mouth and then you eat it as well, which is, I don't know, that, that's very appealing in many ways. And even that might be the cultural precursor to foods you might not think of as very connected to culinary history, like uh, nachos with nacho cheese sauce, you know, or you yeah. like dip it in. That's, that's an edible spoon, right? The chip is. Yeah.
1: I mean, in a way, it's kind of getting to the idea of all right, we have these grains. Mm-hmm. What can we make? Well, we can make porridge and we can make bread. And then, oh, we can use the bread to eat the porridge. Genius. Mm-hmm. Um like that basic motif you see in a lot of different cuisines and and i love it i, I mean i love uh i, I love Ethiopian cuisine mm-hmm. uh, where you use the the, the special bread uh, uh and then of course there's a lot of a lot of this in um, in various indian cuisines as well mm-hmm. uh but yeah i think I feel like you can find it pretty much everywhere like every culture that has bread or some sort of bread like product is going to have some sort of sopping action going on yeah now uh spends a fair amount of time talking about chinese spoons in particular the Tangchi. So this is this is a soup spoon, and you've likely seen one of these before. If you've ever uh, had had Chinese food, say at a Chinese restaurant or even other uh, Asian cuisines, it is a, a short. It has a short, thick handle and a deep, flat bowl, and they're really great for soups. They. They hold more than a traditional Western soup spoon. And at least in my experience, I feel like it can be more stable and it can be more suitable for cooling, you know, for blowing on the soup. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's just all in my mind. But uh, but that's been my experience.
0: Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking
1: about. In Versbecka's article, she goes a lot into like... This Chinese spoon uh, versus the Western spoon, and are they at all comparable? Are they really different things um, and I just refer to you that article for more of that but it's a point, they, they point out that the tang essentially means soup in this context, but in the Chinese usage it 's water plus lots of different things, uh, and it 's different apparently from a thick soup or a soup that doesn 't have anything in it, like a you know a, uh, like a pure a broth type of soup, uh, each of which have their own words in Mandarin. Its origins, however, and its exact uh, design seem linked to North Chinese millet uh, used in kanji, which is uh, a lot like Western porridge and gruel. We talked about this a good bit in our chopsticks episode, mm-hmm. because the more uh, like the, the earlier reliance on, uh, on millet, uh, th- there is no use for chopsticks. Like, what are you going to do? Eat porridge with, with chopsticks? No, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only as uh, you move away from that and you get more into rice that you see the rise of the chopstick.
0: Yeah, and if you recall from uh, from our episode about chopsticks, that the earliest evidence is that chopsticks were originally used more as a cooking utensil than as an eating utensil.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, after we did that article, I, I bought myself some cooking chopsticks, mm-hmm. and I, I – cannot go back to the old way like they're so useful when uh, when I, when I'm frying things and I need to turn little bits of uh, say uh, like um, like tofu cubes mm-hmm. or, or something of that nature when I need to turn those over uh, in the pan and of course do so without being burned I've just come become to, come to really rely on those I also really like them for if uh, for situations where I drop something uh, down uh, into the, the the top of the stove mm-hmm. and I want to get it out before it is burnt up mm-hmm. uh, I can reach down there real quick and grab them with my uh, cooking chopsticks oh nice i mean yeah i think having
0: that kind of precision is something you'll see among a lot of uh i don't know cooks who are operating at a very high level like in in fancy restaurant kitchens a lot of times you will see more use of tongs and and even tweezers than oh yeah you would the, the in, tweezer preparation yeah, yeah than you would in the average home kitchen i think
1: now now back to to porridge though i, I we we've, we've already discussed you know the, the basics here but i think it is kind of neat to think about porridge as the patient zero for all semi-liquid foods you know like cultures nobody really abandons porridge and congee i mean these are things that even the world the word gruel has certain connotations Mm -hmm. but these are all things that if if prepared right can be can be excellent and if nothing else they can be a comfort food so uh you know they never really go away but then we develop all these other things that are porridge-like, right? Uh, things for which the spoon makes all the sense in the world. And then if you're taking, and then again, if you're mixing things, measuring things, again, it, it becomes increasingly important to have the spoon at hand.
0: All right. Well, I think maybe we need to call it there for part one, but there's so much more interesting spoon stuff to talk about. We have given ourselves the spoon challenge. Uh, we we <laughs> dared ourselves to to talk about
1: spoons for two whole parts of the show, and, and by God, we're going to do it. That's right. I and mean, we already have some stuff in the notes we didn't get to, but now we're going to see what else is out there. And, and I, I don't think we're going to be disappointed. Uh, so tune in next time as we continue our look at The Spoon, a, a fantastic bit of uh, culinary technology uh, that has never gone away, will never go away. Uh, so... Uh, Yeah, tune in on Thursday. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and even Invention, uh, you can head on over to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. That's where you'll find all this stuff. On Mondays, we do listener mail. Tuesdays and Thursdays are core episodes. Wednesdays, that's when we tend to publish the artifact. And then on Fridays, we have Weird Al Cinema for you uh, with a Vault episode on the weekends. Also, Invention has its own podcast feed. We're no longer updating that feed, but if you want to find all of the Invention episodes, the older ones uh, in one spot, you can find it there. Just go to wherever you get your podcast and look for Invention. Uh, but anyway, wherever you get any of these podcasts, just rate, review, and subscribe. That's a great way to help us out.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.